Immersive Audio Podcast. In conversation with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs, discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry, from art, science, and business, to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. Bruce Wiggins and Duncan Werner, welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast. How are you today? Uh, We're very well, thank you, I think. (laughs) Yeah, good, thank you. Fantastic. Um, So I guess you tuning in from different locations. Tell us where you are. Okay, well, I'm in Belper in Derbyshire. Um, And Bruce? Yeah, I'm in I'm in Derby actually, so um, near to where I work at Derby University in my uh, me and my kids' bedroom at the moment because that's the quietest place to do this recording. So, <laughs> and you you guys have been colleagues for quite some time, and you both work at the University of Derby. Um, interestingly, um, up until the end of July, I was working at Derby University, but um, I decided to take um, some voluntary severance, and so I'm. I'm now an independent scholar, although I'm still working very much on the on the project with Bruce and and also with the university, but not for the university, if that makes sense. Um, so uh, very much involved with it, and and uh, it allows me to spend some more time uh, doing interesting things rather than perhaps some of the admin that you know takes up all your life basically. You definitely lost me on that, but we're going to have to come back to it and ask you to explain in a bit more detail. But before we dive in, Bruce and Duncan, can you please introduce yourself fully and tell us a little bit about your background? Okay, I can start if you like. Uh, so I'm Bruce Wiggins. I'm, I'm a lecturer at the University of Derby. I've worked there for about 20 years now as a, a, a lecturer. I did my research at Derby University as well as a PhD into, uh, into basically surround sound and ambisonics and a bit of transaural and a bit of headphone-based um, listening as well. And then continued, luckily a job came up just after my PhD to start as a, a full-time lecturer. So I've been teaching at the university um, since then. So um, I teach across the College of Arts and the College of Engineering and Science on our music technology and production courses and our sound, light and live event technology courses um, and also in the MSc Audio Engineering um, and uh, MA Music Production, I used to. Um, and also we've got some PhD students, so uh, we've got the full range of things at the university. And I've looked at surround sound and ambisonics and software tools and algorithms for, for about 20 years now, actually, when I started doing that research. Um, and that's one of the things that's actually brought us together today, I guess, um, is the, you know, the making of the software and the pushing of the, the format um, initially, although it's an open door now that people like Google and Facebook have taken on Ambisonics as their uh, lead format. Um, but that's sort of what I've been doing uh, over the last 20 years, really. I, I studied electrical electronic engineering in the late 70s at Aston University, um, then worked as a musician, um, touring and recording, um, then found myself working for Chrysalis Music, um, a sound engineer, uh, in um, uh, Stratford, Stratford Place in uh, off Oxford Street. Then I went on to do a postgraduate music information technology um, degree, I guess it is, postgraduate degree in um, uh, MIT, 
Um, and that was with Jim Grant and Simon Emerson. Um, then I joined Derby University after then. I was the um, program leader for the music technology and audio system design, which we, we started in around uh, 95. Went through that period. Um, and then in, I think it was around 2005, uh, brought in the MA music production. So I was program leader for that, um, and it was around it was around 2012 ish that there was a big push at the university to to do research. So so that's when I thought, okay, that's 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 an interesting thing that I can uh, I can involve my my interest in guitars, um, and then working alongside Bruce as we at the time we shared a, shared an office discussing how you might think about making a, a, a spatial musical instrument. And that's where the kind of idea of a, a, a spatial guitar came, came from. So, so we've been working kind of on and off together since then. We've, we've had funding from the university to be able to, um, to take that forward. Um, so that, that's kind of brought us to where we are now, really. Well, we're definitely going to dive into the spatial guitar topic in more depth very shortly. But in the meantime, I don't think I had any guests from University of Derby. And uh, if I did, I'm sure I would have remembered. So I'd like to ask you if you could just spare a few sentences just by sharing general information about University of Derby. The University of Derby came into being, I think, around 92. So it's a post-92 university. Um, so... Uh, and as Duncan said, the the music technology um, area is where all this really started in about '95, um, and that was you know a combination of electronics and engineering, and looking at music software and studio work and microphone placements and technology and that kind of stuff. Um, and then in about '99, we started a course which at the time was called live live performance technology, I think. And, and was later renamed to Sound, Light and Live Event Technology um, because we found that students were searching for those sorts of terms and they weren't finding the course. Um, and that's really a course that looks at just live events, really, so lighting, sound. Again, it's engineering, so these courses are accredited by the IET, the Institute of Engineering and Technology, um, to say they're a proper engineering course. Uh, and it's a mixture of programming, electronics, you know, uh, music tech, uh, lighting theory, networking, uh, all sorts of things. Um, and with our students going into industry to do that kind of thing. Um, so, and then again, as Duncan alluded to earlier, uh, we've started some master's courses as well. So um, we've got the MA in music production, um, which is now in the College of Arts, um, which is um, the more studio-based um, side of the um, the subject area, I guess. Um, and we've got an MSc in audio engineering, which again focuses more on the electronics and the programming and the sort of research and development and with the students going into work for people like Midas and uh, Meridian and that kind of thing. Um, and so from an education point of view, that's where the, the university's sort of been heading in our area. Um, and it's, it's always been this mix of the arts and the engineering, because you always need a mix of both, really. Um, and from a research point of view, obviously the university's got uh, a plethora of different research areas that it looks into. 
but again, we've had quite an interest in spatial audio since about, I guess, 99 onwards, uh, where um, it started really as myself and my supervisor at the time was a guy called Ian Patterson-Stevens. Um, and also I met uh, Peter Lennox, who um, is just left the university as well. He's been there for a long time. Uh, he also works a lot in spatial audio and perception. Uh, and we started really creating a multi-channel sound lab at the university so we could experiment in a room with lots of speakers um, to look at things like ambisonics and binaural audio uh, and see how we could start to, um, you know, both research into the subject area, but also make some tools that people could use so they could actually create some of the content, because that's one of the things that was really missing at the time. Um, once I finished my PhD in about 2003, um, it became really obvious that although there was, you know, there was a few people looking into ambisonics and other systems, there weren't really very many tools available. And thanks to, you know, Steinberg and VST technology, uh, which had been around since about 95, um, it was quite straightforward to make, or to think about anyway, making plugins that would allow people to do it. So we started to do that, um, or I started to do that in about 2006, I guess, 2005, 2006. Um, and I just made them available for people that were interested because it was pretty niche at the time. Uh, there wasn't really a market um, for that sort of thing uh, commercially, I guess. Um, and then we got a bit of interest we can perhaps talk about later. So, you know, there's some of the software was using computer games or uh, and at festivals and um, actually there's a bit in VLC media player now. Um, and so there's various bits that have been used uh, that have come from Derby out and about in the world, in the wilderness. Um, and then in about 2010, 11, I probably 2010, we started um, with what wasn't at the time, but the year after got called sounds in space, which is a little research symposium, that we put on at Derby, uh, that we run every year, um, except this year because of lockdown and COVID, we uh, couldn't run it. Um, and that's where we just get people from actually all over the world come and talk about spatial audio and uh, demonstrate what they're up to. Because um, one of the things we were really keen on and noticed at the time um, was that conferences to do with audio didn't often have much audio in them. They were always in a conference centre with perhaps a loudspeaker that wouldn't work during a presentation. Um, and so we were very keen just to have some way of actually getting people together and being able to listen to what they were talking about at the same time as talking about it, because it always seemed a bit disjointed to us. Uh, and actually, that's changed a lot now. You know, conferences normally have, you know, rooms full of headphones and full of loudspeakers, but that was there wasn't really much going on in that way at the time. Um, so we've got a big auditorium that's a cube shape at the university that we use in our sound, light and live event technology uh, degree for all the students to, you know, to, to mock up stages and hang lights and we've got loads of trust and we can configure it in any way we want. Um, and so that was perfect for our Sounds in Space conference. So every year we set up a big trust and hang about 30 loudspeakers with about eight subs. Um, and we have it connected to the same, you know, computer that's running the presentation. So we just say, right, come. Uh, talk about your work but you can also demonstrate it um we've now got as well you know headphones to every seat as well because um headphone based you know surround sound has become more popular um and that's gone really well we've had you know the bbc come to that we've had um a harry potter uh pottermore type exhibition from kaneko uh, who uh, performed that at derby university and people from all over the world demonstrating their 
and surround sound wares. There's always been an interest since about 99 at Derby in immersive audio and surround sound. Um, and so we, we hope to keep that up in the future. <laughs> Very interesting. Um, quite a mix of things um, over the years. If we could just stay with the conference uh, for a bit, because I did want to ask you about the conference in general. I've not had the pleasure to attend myself. What are the kind of uh, key unique features of your conference? What sort of topics or areas you're focusing on? What kind of guests uh, you tend to invite? And what are the process of kind of get on board uh, for, for those who would like to present? So um, in terms of... Um it's unique selling point, I guess. It, it was always this large room with lots of loudspeakers um, and the opportunity for people to to demonstrate their work. So that was always the push. So we started it as a research group because we wanted to have, you know, a, a place for us all to demonstrate, you know, and talk about what we were doing. And then we just thought, well, let's open it up to everyone. Um, and so it's always been a good mix of, you know, we have the odd person from Derby present mixed with everyone else. Um, we, we tend to invite... We don't tend to invite lots of people. We tend to just put the word out and then people and uh, just allow them to submit a, a proposal. And that can be a performance of their piece. So we've had some great um, people just come and demonstrate some surround sound piece that they've made. And that can be in pretty much any format. So um, because we've got so many loudspeakers, we can pretty much map any system to that. So whether that's Aura 3D or uh, you know 5.1, 7.1 or full third order ambisonics or whatever. And I think another really useful uh, or unique part about the conference was that um, almost that ultimate flexibility of just tell us what you want to show and we'll make it work. So because I could write the software that would make the decoder for whatever speaker or we wanted, I could, I could do that. We could map in anything and everything was very bespoke and just done for uh, whoever wanted to present whatever it is they wanted to present. So uh, that made it a bit hairy on the day, <laughs> and it's now two days. So I used to be I used to be um, busy <laughs> making sure all that worked. Um, but 99 times out of 100, it, it all did work. And uh, we've had some great mixes of, you know, people from academia uh, demonstrating, um, you know, some something perhaps a little bit more esoteric and the blue sky, uh, in terms of uh, perhaps an algorithm. So, an, you know, we've had things from upmixing algorithms to, you know, like I say, the BBC showing some of their object-based uh, mixing approaches. Uh, we've had Simon Goodwin from Codemasters talk about the stuff he does with uh, computer games. Uh, I've had Hyungkook Lee demonstrate some amazing 3D recordings which uh, of church organs, which sounded amazing with our eight Sub, we've got a DMB big sound system that we also put into the array. So there's a lot of sub available if it's needed, um, which we found it was for this particular pipe organ recording. Um, and they could hear it all through the entire university, the sub, actually, uh, it turns out. I found out the day after, anyway. Um, so, and it's just this great mix of the artistic, the demonstrating, uh, with the technical, how do we get stuff working, you know, the algorithm design. Um, and it's it's really that mix. And I, like I say, I think um, conferences now um, have got much better at demonstrating audio during the conference. Um, but at the time we started, and for a good five years into when we were doing it, that was, that was really, the, we were the exception rather than the rule. Um, and it's very low cost to almost free conference for people to come to as well 
Um, so it's it, it's a very friendly and accessible uh, meeting of minds, I guess, um, and not we were quite keen for it to not be this big formal. Um, you must write a paper. So, for example, you don't have to write a paper. You can just present. You can just tell us about what you're interested in, demonstrate something you've already done, and not have to go through, you know, the various hoops that lots of conferences have. And you know, for good reason, because paper writing and output is a is a big thing. But if you wanted a sort of friendlier, um, let's just discuss it. It was a great place, a great place for that. Actually, I totally agree. And um, there's so much scope for events and conferences of such nature where not necessarily everyone has time or inclination to write engineering brief and papers and sometimes they just want to share art you know um which could be still technical but doesn't always necessarily involve certain conventional methods of applying for a submission so to speak if you compare it to audio engineering society which is great but i think we need that variety which is a bit more arty yeah exactly and did you have to run the conference virtually this year or did you decide to skip altogether we decided it was up in the air for a while and we decided actually because because one of the main focuses of the conference was this large loudspeaker array and getting everyone together that actually um, and there were lots of other virtual conferences going on around a similar time i just decided that you know perhaps there wasn't a gap this year for that sort of thing um so so we just i, I had a rest this year <laughs> from organizing a conference anyway you're currently working together on the project under a name gasp what is gasp and how the idea came about can you tell us more so, so GASP is, is Guitars with Ambisonic Spatial Performance. Um, it was a project that um, was derived, if you like, from, from work that we were doing with undergraduate students, where we were, we were, they, they, they were doing um, multi-channel mixes in the studio, and they're doing the, the, the standard stereo mix. And... Because we'd, we'd recently, at the time, um, got a, a lab where we'd got multiple loudspeakers and, and Bruce's work involved the, the ambisonic decoders, um, it seemed a sensible thing to say, okay, well, let's, let's give our students an opportunity to remix their work um, as, a, as an ambisonic um, performance, if you like. Um, so we did that for, well, we... We still do it. We, we, so that that was probably around uh, 2010-ish that we started that. Subsequent to that, we started thinking, well, okay, well, this is all very interesting, but what if we could create a musical instrument that was that spatialized its sound at source? So rather than taking a, a existing multi-tracks of different takes. What about see if we can get an instrument that would allow us to spatialize it? And um, being being interested in guitars, um, it, it seemed an obvious thing to, that you know we could we could if we'd got the right tools, we could extract six signals from the electric guitar and use those um, as the, as the basis for an ambisonic uh, sounding performance. Um, so that that was the first that was the first kind of stage of that. Um, in order to get those six guitar individual strings signals, we needed to to look what was out there, and, and there was nothing in the UK. But in the states, there's a guy um, Paul 
Rubenstein with a with a company called Ubertar. Um, Paul makes uh, all manner of interesting kind of bespoke musical instruments. And at the time, one of them was a, multi- a hexaphonic pickup. So he was winding his own pickups such that, um, and, and producing the, the, um, the, the breakout boxes as well. So, so basically, we got, we got hold of a Strat um, and, and replaced one of the pickups with, um, with the Ubertar pickup. And, and started kind of playing around with, with sending that to um, multiple loudspeakers with, with individual control over each string. Um, so with th- then it kind of morphed into this idea of, well, okay, let's, let, okay, so we've got individual strings, but let's, let's process each individual string. So at the time, we were using um, Native Instruments Guitar Rig, which is, which is a sort of a, a, an amp simulator, but it's also got all sorts of um, sound processing uh, algorithms in it uh, that, that, that make the guitar sounds anything but guitar, as well as sort of traditional guitar. So the idea was to, to um, basically process each individual string with um, a guitar rig um, preset, so that gave us actually then 12 outputs because the output of the uh, guitar rig at the time was, was a stereo output or at least a, what you might call a pseudo stereo output. So we then, got, we then got 12 signals to play with. That was when I think the discussion went to, to back to Bruce to say, well, what, you know, what can we do? How can we, how can we do something more interest, interesting other than simply place um, a, a guitar uh, track or a, a stereo guitar image of, of a string in a particular location. Um, and, and that's where we, um, well, I think this is where, where, where Bruce's work, we adapted or Bruce adapted some of his spatializing designs to come up with the, uh, the, the, what we now call the gasp spatializers, which, which involve sort of three elements being what we, we, we call spread, angle, and distance. So we'd got, so on each string, we've got a, a spread angle distance control. The spread being the stereo spread that comes out of the uh, sound processor. And, and it's at this point, we, we, we sort of start, started to use more generic terms like timbralizer for the um, sound processor, because effectively we, we, we were using the guitar as the sound source, almost like six oscillators, um, and then we were retambralizing that um, with the with at the time guitar rig. But then we since moved into um, a program called Helix, which is um, Line Six, so that's a guitar processor. So. Both of those, both of those timbralizers give us a stereo image from each string. Um, so the, the the spatializer, what that does is that enables us to have control over the stereo image, but we can modulate that stereo image. So we can we can move the stereo image around the uh, set of circular loudspeakers, if you like, or on a bi- or on binaural headphones. Um, and we can modulate that, so we can move the stereo. So we're very much going against the grain of purism, 
we're, we're, we're trying to use existing sort of technologies to create something new. And, and one, one interesting thing that we found then was, well, if we can, if we can modulate the stereo image around, not just from front to back, but actually from front to back and overlapping and then coming back again, and if we can give that some kind of speed control, then we're on our way to creating some sort of immersion that's associated with that particular process. So at that point, then we've got, if we break it down, just looking, sort of thinking about this as individual strings. So on, on a given string, we've got the, the, the spatializing of the stereo image and the, and the modulation of that. The other, the other uh, two parameters are angle, so angle and distance, but if the, the angle is is what it says, it's 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 where is that where is that sound coming from in the in the uh, in the circle of loudspeakers? But it's not just <laughs> it's not just the mono sound; it's the stereo image. So there'll be a central point of where that stereo image is, which can then be manipulated uh, with things like low frequency oscillators. Um, around the spatial um, image, again with a speed as a factor. Um, so we've then got we've then got the, the, the those two elements. We've got the the um, spread and then the angle. And then the distance feature is is slightly more complex to explain. Although, it's, and I'm sure Bruce will correct me here if I'm wrong. But um, the idea is that it, the distance control expands and contracts each side of the stereo image. You can imagine you've got a left and right and that are at point sources, but then you can increase the width of each of those point sources such that you get a spread on the stereo. So it's not a stereo spread as in the original spread control, which is manipulating the image itself. What we're doing is we're manipulating the breadth of each side of the image. So what we've got is we've got the, the, the spread angle and distance on each individual string. And we've got individual control over those. So we've actually got quite a lot of parameters that we can manipulate to create the immersion sense of the guitar. One interesting thing that we've, we've, we've found from that is, is um, when we are controlling, uh, applying some kind of rotational speed control to those effects, there's a there's a kind of a critical point where perceptually you can you can track what's happening, and then there's a point at which you can no longer track it. It then becomes entirely immersive, and that's that's kind of quite interesting because it's that kind of crossover point uh, that we we want to. Um, investigate and expand a little more because there's, there's quite a lot of very interesting creative artifacts being created um, in that process. Um, there's there's some examples of of the recordings that we've done on our um, webpage, which is um, gasproject.xyz, and 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 on there there's some links to some Facebook 360 examples. And also to a, a, a site that Bruce made me aware of called Host, um, which is higher order ambisonic spatial streaming. 
so we've got we've got some work that's um, some examples that are posted on there. On each track, we've done it. There are sections where it just it folds down to mono. So it literally folds down to what was coming out of the guitar without any processing, and then expands again out to the 3D.
we, we started off with the with the Ubertar pickups, um, and they are very nice. They are passive devices, uh, very warm sounding. Um, however, we wanted to explore what what other products were out there, and and a new product that came that that we became you know uh, known to was um, a company called Psychfi. Uh, Joel Guzman, uh, again in the States, um, produces these pickups, but he, 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 his pickups are um, pa- uh, active pickups, sorry. And so they tend to have, they tend to be a, a little more consistent in terms of um, bandwidth uh, and the differences between each string pickup is, is that there is more consistency. Tonally, they um, they're more suited for um, what you might call metal or rock guitar productions, uh, whereas the Ubertar pickups are a little more gentle um, and, and will be suited for for you know other other types of, of recordings. But equally, both are both are very good pickups, and um, I wouldn't want to suggest one was better than the other. They're just different. So yeah, so we we installed. Um, we installed the Ubertar pickups onto two of our guitars. One was the, the first Fender Strat that we had. And then we also experimented with putting one across an acoustic guitar because that was we were just interested to see what the crosstalk might be with the acoustic nature of the instrument. Um, and then more recently, we, we, we installed one of the Psych-Fi pickups uh, onto another Strat you know, for the purpose of, of of doing some sort of sense of, of of how well they compare, and and what sort of preferences there might be for particular styles of music. For those who would like to check out the Gas product, essentially, as it stands, are we mainly talking about the kind of the very much R and D prototyping stage? Or perhaps if anybody's like sound designer or composer and they they would like they're you know really excited to hear about this concept and they they have a guitar, they can plug it in into software. Are they limited by certain uh, limitation as far as the hardware concern, or perhaps there's a way of um, getting all the right components and then taking advantage of the sound engine that comes after you've you've plugged in the guitar essentially? It's no mean feat. <laughs> the journey we've come on um, has has been has been challenging and interesting. But you know, I guess um, if you've got the will, um, then basically you need to install the multi-channel pickup. We we use Reaper as our main uh, recording uh, interface, our door rather. Um, so you, you'd need a multi-channel interface for it for the six strings. Um, actually, you need seven inputs because um, you'd also want to take an output from the, the main guitar as well. Um, the tambralizing process is done through. Um, we're using Helix at the moment, so um, that's sort of all singing, all dancing guitar production tool. Um, one interesting thing that I've not mentioned is we've, because we've got access to separate strings, um, we can treat each string, obviously we can treat each string differently timbre-wise, but we can also access that uh, sequentially with uh, gates. So one thing that we could do and have done is, is set up what we refer to as a guitar pegiator. So that's just a fancy name 
for the switching of notes on and off in a rhythmic sequence. So it means that we can we can have uh, we can program in into a MIDI sequencer a, a, a series of arpeggiation on and off notes. Those individual um, MIDI notes will trigger gates that are associated with each individual string, such that when you strum a chord, the um, arpeggiation effect is, is achieved because each guitar string will switch on and off in a rhythmic fashion. And the relationship of each string uh, to each other and to the rhythmic nature of the sequencing creates uh, a sort of a, an arpeggiation effect that you would normally expect you know, on a synthesizer. So you hold down a set of keys and switch the arpeggio and it switches through the individual note. So this is actually quite an interesting thing that that opens up for guitarists to to, to use the guitar as, as an arpeggiator itself. Spatialization, uh, we, we mentioned earlier, is, 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 is Bruce's sort of uh, design. The control of the system is through Ableton. Now we're currently using, because this is a prototype, we're using... And it, and it just so happened that we happened to have access to two separate computers. And because the processing is quite intense for the Helix sound processing, we decided to initially do the, um, the, the testing, if you like, on across two computers. So we got one computer running Ableton and one running um, the Helix and the Reaper software and the spatialization software. The idea of, of, of Ableton working in clip mode, it means that we've been able to create um, a range of different presets. So because we've got so many parameters now, because we've got information from six strings, we've got six strings turning into 12 channels, we've got spatializers on each channel, we've got timbralizers on, it, on, uh, on, each, on each channel and each string. We've got a whole bunch of what potentially could be mind-boggling ways of manipulating the sound. So it was a case then of saying, well, okay, let's let's create some presets. We call them auditory scenes, um, which effectively combine um, different timbres, different combinations of timbres on different strings with different spatializations at different spatialization tempos and, and, and spatialization movements and, and spatialization shapes. Um, so in that respect, we've, 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 kind of got, we've, we've got a complex system where we, we need a separate control system to deal with the, the, the mass of variables associated with the, uh, with the GASP system. And, and the current, the, our current work is, is to put that onto one machine. So at the moment, as I say, it's running across two machines. Um, we're actually investigating... Um, program called Bitwig, which has got extensive um, LFO and controller features, which which works, which well, we're, we're hoping will work very well uh, with our system. And and just to mention Emma Fitzmaurice, who's uh, one of the kind of key kind of people that's uh, been we've been working with, that's enabled us to um, take the take the sort of um, design of the integration of the system to to this level um so yeah we, we we're, we're trying to get bitwig um operational so that the whole system can run on one computer and we're trying to get it to operate on on a single 
uh, Mac Mini. Um, so with the with a bunch of software and the um, hex hex pickups, we may well be in a position to you know if 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 there are interested parties out there to say yes we can we can we can make an ambisonic guitar system for you. It is a collection of tools, you know, and most of them are are out there. Um, as Duncan said, there's the um, you know some there's a few bespoke tools that we've made at Derby to enable this project to be more usable, um, but we can share those to be honest. Um, the a lot of the work's gone into the as Duncan said the control uh, the the combination of tools that work well from a production sense the combination of things that doesn't work well it's the investigation of 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 the usability of the system as much as anything um, and especially when it comes to the the live use so Duncan's not really mentioned yet but the the system is also set up um, for live guitarists to use in some. Uh, usable way and that's where these presets really come into their own because you can't be controlling all of these things simultaneously even if you've got you know a another person doing that bit for you and so a lot of the project has been really experimenting with all of these different variables and the combinations um, thereof to find out what works and what doesn't and how to best control them and what's the most usable way of going from this preset to this preset and what's the best combination of software so um so it is definitely doable for someone with a hex pickup guitar um, to start experimenting and playing with this stuff as well. Um, but as Duncan has said, the, the system gets quite complex quite quickly because of the sheer number of channels. Uh, so every you know every one of those 12 channels will come out as 16 channels if it's third, if it's third order ambisonics and then you've got you know 12 of those. So there's a lot of data flying around um, that, that proves to be quite a challenge for computers, even modern ones. <laughs> I would imagine in order for this product to be commercially successful, I can kind of imagine a few groups of potential users. So one would be a classic guitarist who never heard of Spatial Audio, but they might have heard something through the record label or through the fact that the popularity of Dolby Atmos and Epic Age and Ambisonics coming through uh, mainstream and uh, streaming services enable the support of spatial formats uh, going forward and they would like to kind of explore their creativity in that space so and from their point of view they would like to plug cable from their guitar mono signal maybe create a third order track in reaper or pro tools pop a plugin and there's like one knob or maybe two knobs and perhaps called heaven and they just would like to dial that in and maybe uh, browse for some presets is is it completely unrealistic or perhaps there's a roadmap between going from prototype which obviously sounds really complex uh, at this point and to that very kind of simplistic way of using it uh, for like average guitarists who would like to like i said kind of explore their creativity within the spatial audio world that, that that that's the sixty four million dollar question, <laughs> um, uh, and it's an excellent one, and it and and, it, and that is the one that we have been grappling with. So, in my opinion, it is entirely doable. What we are we are working to that because we've we, we've now, you know, put in this onto one machine. At least if it's on one machine, then we can start to say, okay, well, is there a way that we can bring out some of the interface? Uh, information into a more into a sort of a um, a more simplistic overview, rather than having to deal with the the detail 
it's a bit like, I guess, uh, low level and, and uh, low level and high level programming. You want you want all the, you know, the the the, the minutiae programming going on in the background, and then you just want up front some simple control knobs that let you achieve what you want to achieve. We are not at that stage yet, but we are getting quite close um, with the with the integration of it onto one machine. So, I mean, the other way to approach it is that, that and, and we, we we say this on our website that we we invite um, and and. Of course, it's difficult in these times, but we we invite guitarists to come and record on our system, such that they can experience it and work with 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 us. That kind of know what might be the best way to approach the system for their particular genre or style of performance, um, and and then we can also do post production on that should that be needed. So, um, so at this point, we, you know, we can't really, we're not in a position to say, um, um, uh, here it all is, you can put it together yourself. But that wouldn't be something that's too far off. So at the moment, no. But we, we you know, we want to encourage uh, guitarists to work with us. And we'll be, I'd be very happy to, to um, receive any um, you know, interest if any guitarist that like to have a go and and see how their their kind of performance would work with the system. Um, it, I mean, one of the things that the you know the things that we've we've had some kind of feedback on is is that it, it doesn't sound like anything else. It doesn't sound like a guitar processor because you know you wouldn't you, you wouldn't get a surround guitar anywhere. Where would you get a surround guitar? So. It would seem that, that what we can offer is quite unique, um, but it's complex, and we need to we need to focus that down to to simplifying it. I'd like to come back to the hardware question just briefly. So, the multi-channel pickup device itself is necessary to capture the raw material that is used within the sound engine, or are there any avenues to? Uh, use kind of conventional guitar signal input and simulate that in the software, find a workaround, the, the necessity to introduce additional hardware device uh, of the guitar. Can, can it all be done in software or does it always imply a combination of number of hardware products or potentially even the, an, an invention of a new breed of a guitar product itself? When we first started out sort of thinking, okay, if we want to try and make a spatial instrument, um, and this could be applied to any instrument, not just a guitar. But, but one way to do it is to is to basically break down the frequency response of any musical instrument into its individual frequency bands, if you like. So, what what you could do if if you've got you know whatever the bandwidth of the instrument is, break that down into you know using a set of filters, um, break that down into six, eight, twelve, however many. You think might be appropriate for the instrument, um, and then apply the uh, spatializing that we do normally to six strings. But you could then apply that spatializing to the individual frequency bins of of the of the sort of, sp- of the split frequency response of the instrument, and that 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 could be done with any instrument, including a guitar. Um, so I guess, well, I know 
because we've, we've, we've done it, we wanted to compare that approach with the six, with, with the individual string um, approach. Um, and it does work, but it's nothing like as profound in its um, sense of immersion um, because you've got a, a separate signal from each string. And depending upon how that guitarist uses the strings, which is a strange thing to say, it's about the performance of the guitar player, which strings are being played, what combinations of strings are being played, and, and all the, the kind of things that you wouldn't normally think of because you think of the guitar as a holistic instrument. Once you start breaking it down into, its, into thinking about it uh, as six individual sound sources, then you approach it in a very different way, from even from a performing sort of compositional point of view, knowing that it can be processed, you know, each string can be processed individually um, or, or groups of strings individually, both timbrally and spatially and, and given movement, et cetera, et cetera. So, so yes, that is a technique that you could use, although, as I say, we tried it. It's not, it's not as profound. In, in its sense of immersion. Could I potentially take a, a group of these sounds and then use this guitar processor and then upmix it to ambisonics and then decode it back to 7.1.2, for instance, for Dolby Atmos, and, and then create some kind of very interesting evocative spatial effect in order to kind of open it up to more potential use cases within the context of music mixing for um, spatial audio formats? No, you're absolutely right. Um... As, as Duncan mentioned earlier, the the focus of this project was on the guitar um, because Duncan and also a lot of the, the students who we were working with at the time were guitar players. And so although that was the, the vehicle really for um, the development of the system, um, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the work has gone into, as you, you brightly sort of noticed, the actual post-production tools and the and the and the scenes and whatnot. Um, and so it's it's actually very transferable in that from that point of view. Um, because as long as you've got access to you know different sources separately, you can you can process them um, using this particular uh, setup of scenes, and you could miss out the tombalizers if you didn't want that bit, uh, and use the you know what Duncan called the car, the guitar pegiator, but use it on some other instrument you could make a pun out of. Um, so actually, a lot of the things that have been looked at. I think in this project are are transferable in that way, and I and I think you're right. Actually, what you were saying earlier, it would be useful if there was, you know, if if the if the system as a whole was 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 packaged together in a more usable way. And I think that's that's the direction that the project's going in. And it started, you know, as this ultimately, you know, almost infinitely flexible beast. And as the project goes on, the people working at it are learning the you know the things that are good and the things that aren't, and it's slowly becoming a bit more manageable. And hopefully, um, you know, the end goal will be a set of tools that actually you can just plug in and go, right, if you've got six inputs or however many you want, here's some things that will be useful for you to do with them in a, in a spatial context, basically. Mm. You kind of answered my next question, but I'll ask anyway in case there's anything else you'd like to add. Uh, what are the aspirations and plans for this project going forward? Looking forward is, is often a case of seeing where you come from. Um, just just because I happen to have revised this, I'll say it. <laughs> um, a couple of years ago, in, in 2017, we went to Hamburg 
um, to a conference at the University of Hamburg. It was called um, Klinkt Gut, uh, and that was a surround sound conference. And we 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 they'd got multiple loudspeaker setups there, which we were able to um, plug in and play some examples of our work. Subsequently, we did we did presentations at um, at Sounds in Space uh, at Derby University, and then. Also, last year in Sounds in Space, we did a live sort of event where we got a number of guitarists come along and presented, uh, got them to play different pieces and, and, and got a little audience so that they could hear what the system sounded like um, in a live context. And then last December, December uh, 2019, we went to um, Innovation in Music at uh, University of West London. Um, had an invitation um, from Justin Patterson, um, and we we took all our kit down there. I think Justin organised some um, PMC loudspeakers for us, which was which was wonderful. So we got a, a set of uh, eight loudspeakers in a circular fashion in the room. We got uh, a session guitarist with us, and we got a couple of there was there was some interest generated from doing that. So that kind of leads into where 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 do we go or what are our aspirations? One of the one of the um, delegates was from the uh, University of Valencia, um, and this was um, Berkeley College. Uh, Berkeley College in the states do a do a franchise course to the uh, to different universities around the globe, um, and. Valencia College was 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 one of them. Uh, they, they have an end of year sort of performance for their students, and we were approached to see if um, we were we we you know if they could use the GASP system for some of their guitar students that were performing at, at the end of the year. Um, that was encouraging. Clearly, that's that's on the back burner now. The other thing that came out of it was the connection with. Um, the uh, International Guitar Research Centre at the University of Surrey, and they have a, a connection. Or they do they they do uh, annual conferences, um, and one of those conferences should have been last November, but it's been trans transferred over to sorry delayed until next March, which is called the Twenty First Century Guitar, which seems to map in quite well with. With what we're doing, um, and this is a um, th this is a, a conference for guitarists by guitarists, and we were hoping to be able to go along and take the kit and um, and present there. It looks like we may end up doing that virtually now, um, but it will be a good exercise in that we could actually try to do some live um, live sort of transmission um, of the system over over the net and um, see how well that, that turns out on headphones at their end using binaural uh, techniques. Um, the future, well, as we, as we said earlier, we, what, we, what we're trying to do is reach people that might be interested. So people involved in sound design, um, you know, if there's, a, if there's a, some kind of sound design project that's associated with guitar technology or guitar uh, performance, etc. You know, we'd we'd like to be one one of the things that we are looking towards is, is bidding for some funding 
um, which will enable us to create a portfolio of very different genres to see how well those genres can sort of mesh in with the gas production techniques. So um, again, that's that that's something that that we are we're kind of looking at putting forward a bid at the moment. So yeah, so so we're looking to sort of see if there's interest out there who might be interested, guitarists, um, surround music producers, content providers for um, VR um, and all the R's. That that's where we're at. We've so yeah, that's kind of an overview of where we're looking to be. I just briefly imagine Guitar Hero in VR blasting away a third order spatial guitar performance. Uh, <laughs> for, yeah, full interactive. Um, why not? Uh, yeah, indeed. Well, it's a fascinating project, and I'm sure uh, some of our listeners will be interested to find out more. So, uh, for those who are, uh, we'll make sure to include more information in the podcast show notes. And please feel free to get in touch with Duncan or Bruce to discuss um, any potential ideas you might have. Let's talk about some other things, uh, not steal a spotlight from Gus, but um, there's a few interesting things. Over the years, uh, you've created a number of software tools for research and for the creators. Can you talk us through some of the key projects that you've been involved with? And I'm particularly interested in a plugin called Ambi Freeverb that you've designed quite some time ago. As I mentioned um, at the beginning, so I've been you know, carrying out research into ambisonics and spatial audio since I started in about 99, so a long time ago. Um, and one of the things that became really clear after I'd finished that work was that, as I mentioned, that you know the the tools just weren't there in order to be able to use uh, or implement or create mixes using ambisonics um, very easily. So um, I was really keen, as I'd been you know taken on as a lecturer at the university, I was really keen to be able to uh, you know allow our students initially just to be able to play around with this stuff and investigate what was possible and. Uh, you know, create mixes using Amazonic. So I made some VST plugins in about 2006. Um, initially, just starting with um, the, the panners, and there were already some panners available from the University of York, actually, but I wanted to make my own anyway, um, just to learn the platform, if nothing else. Um, and But the bit that I sort of worked on in my PhD was the decoding, really. So I worked on looking at the algorithms for decoding to irregular speaker arrays, like 5.1, for example, and 7.1. Um, so I made some decoders for up to fourth order, actually, at the time, um, for 5.1. Um, again, just to allow our students to be able to mix and listen to this stuff and use use the tools in our multi-channel sound, sound labs. Um, and obviously, once you've got some panners and you've got some decoders, you want you want some, some simple audio effects. So... Um, a reverb being quite an important tool, I think, from an immerse, you know, an immersion and a spatial audio point of view. So one of the mailing lists that um, a number of us were on at the time, it would often come round to debating about what the best way to make a reverb was. And there was lots of talk about um, how you shouldn't do it this way and you shouldn't do it that way. And it ended up just being a, a, a big conversation about how not to do it. Um, and so I thought I'd just make one as simply as possible. Um, and just release it, which is where the original Ambi Freeverb came from. So I based it on Freeverb, which is an open source, um, you know, nice sounding Schroeder Mora reverb model. Um, and it was quite simple, but actually it sounded really nice. Um, and so uh, that was used um, 
again by the students. Um, and at the same time of this, obviously we started to um, get known, I guess, in, again, sort of niche circles. Um, so some of these tools had been used by um, Codemasters in the Colin McRae games. Um, I was contacted by um, the makers of Grand Theft Auto to put my um, irregular um, speaker decoder algorithm into their into their games. Um, and I did get it working, but I never actually got confirmation whether it's in there or not. Um, I think it is. <laughs> but they never admitted it. Um, and so it was using computer games, because again, there wasn't many tools around at the time. Um, and it saved actually working in ambisonics in games where you, you want to output to headphones or you want to output to loudspeakers. Um, at the time, games were still distributed on DVDs. And so saving space was a big deal. And so having uh, an audio track that could be presented over headphones or different numbers of speakers without having to uh, have different mixes stored on the, on the, on the, the system and be able to orientate it with the camera uh, was actually a big deal at the time. Uh, so we're involved in that project. And Function One got in contact because they were really interested in ambisonics in a live context. So in around 2006, I think it was, we... Um, uh, used my panners and second order decoders on a, on a massive six speaker ring uh, at the Glade Festival uh, in the UK. Um, and we, we did some great experiments before the conference started, having massive motorbikes going across this huge array. Uh, and one of the interesting things is if you, if you play ambisonic mixes out of really loud, you know, really big loudspeakers in a big circle, then the, the images do get bigger in the same way. So the, everything that was played sounded massive, like the guitar, the, the motorbike was huge. Um, and actually that, that particular project was interesting because it was voted the best sounding stage on site by the, the punters that came to the festival. Um, but it was the quietest off site, uh, which was a really interesting feature uh, that we still haven't really explored um, as much as we should have done. And actually the Glade Festival from that point, uh, the next year, every stage was run with my plugins um, in order to spatialize in some way what was being played on them. And I made little plugins where you could cut out frequency bands and you could pan different frequencies in different positions to give some interest. Uh, so you couldn't do too much because they didn't, the people creating the audio didn't want you to mess around with it too much. But actually it created a nice, uh, a nice um, sound scene uh, that worked really well. Ambi Freeverb that I made originally, just which I knocked together quite quickly, um, was very simple and didn't, uh, although it sounded nice, it didn't actually react to different positions uh, in, a, in, a, in a usable way. So if you put in, uh, it actually only used the omnidirectional feeds to generate the reverb. So it was sort of cheating a little bit. So Ambi Freeverb 2, which actually I released in about 2012 or 13, probably, but I didn't actually write it up into a paper until about 2016, possibly actually took in a whole B format soundstage and it would, if you, you know, if something panned around, then the reverb would be different depending on where the, the source was. And you had control over how much scattering happened inside the, the reverb. And you had a bit more control and it was a bit better actually as a reverb. Um, and so, and reverbs have always really interested me because that, I think that is the key in order to get externalization, to get immersiveness. Uh, and that's where our, our, our research has taken us, which I'll mention in a minute. Um, so, and then just after that, uh, I worked on 
actually measured reverbs. So I presented a system, actually at Sounds in Space one year, where you could measure a full 3D sound scene using, at the time, Soundfield mics, um, and have that as a measured 3D reverb engine. So you could put in... Like an input-impulse response, like a convolution reverb for 360. It's a convolution reverb, but it's using a matrix of convolution reverbs. So normally when you've got a convolution reverb, you are measuring one direction. So if you use that particular reverb, you're simulating a source in that spot, and it will sound great, but you can't use that reverb for any other source because it will they'll all come from the same place. And that's not ideal, right? So I, I demonstrated a system where you could you could measure a, a few different points um, and different directions, and then you could um, transform that into having a 3D representation of the sound scene. So you could put in um, a B-format signal, an ambisonic signal, and depending on where the source was in that field, you would get the reverb correctly from that direction. Um, and that's actually something I still want to work on because um, that works really well. I was about to say, is, is it available as a plugin? <laughs> it's not available as a plugin, but you can you, you can mock it up using Reaper's built-in convolution engine uh, reverb, which is how I demonstrated it. At sound. If you if you go to my website and look at Sounds in Space, uh, I'll remember the year in a minute. It was about two thousand and seventeen, probably or eighteen. Then um, I've got a presentation saying how you can do it, basically. Uh, and it works really well. Um, and then, uh, as you mentioned, in 2015, 16, everything started to get a bit more interesting from a virtual reality and a 360 video and immersive audio point of view. Um, and everything came back, you know, back to headphones again. I ended up having a look at what YouTube was doing and released a few tools um, to change the frequency response of their decoding at the time, which wasn't as flat as it perhaps could have been, uh, which they fixed now, interestingly. And that's when the project with VLC came about, uh, where their VLC is the only, uh, as far as I'm aware, media player that will take 360 videos uh, and it will decode it to loudspeaker arrangements. So, uh, so there's some of my um, irregular uh, loudspeaker decoder technology in VLC now, um, which will allow you to do that. From what version onwards was that implemented? Uh, version three, version three onwards, uh, it'll do. It'll take a 360 video with an ambisonic feed uh, up to third order from memory. Uh, and it'll if you've got your computer set to I'm outputting this on a surround array, it'll decode it to that particular surround array. Without basically telling it anything, it will just automatically detect what's in place. Yeah, well, it goes off whatever whatever your operating system thinks you've got. So if your operating system thinks you've got a quad, then it will decode to quad. If your operating system thinks you've got 5.1, It'll decode it to five one. Uh, it's not a lot of people know it will do that. <laughs> exactly. I, I I believe I I was sort of trying to get some information about that version of VLC, and I I don't recall that kind of information being publicly available. So it's very exciting. No, it's it's very difficult. Yeah, it's very difficult to find, and it, and it might be actually that they've not shouted about it because perhaps some aspects of it aren't quite finished. So. Um, but but the technology is in there and it will output to loudspeakers because I've tested that bit. So there's some interesting stuff there. And then the things we're looking at now is there's a the big issue, I think, at the moment with um, headphone-based surround sound systems at the moment is this externalization of, of sources. And that is a lot to do with um, the reverberant field and the, the simulation of the place that you should be in. And whether you're trying to transport yourself 
to a new acoustic or whether you're trying to put things in an augmented way into the acoustic you are currently in, the actual the, the reverb and the sound of the place uh, makes it is, is, is a big deal, as is, as is head tracking, of course. Uh, and so the projects we're currently looking at, and I'm looking at this with a, um, a colleague called Mark Dring, is we're looking at um, measuring rooms very high order, so up to 35th order, um, just to see. Where is my calculator? <laughs> it's a lot. Of, we're only doing it in 2D currently because otherwise the channel counts get absolutely crazy. So uh, you're not allowed to nod, but you can you can rotate your head. Um, so and what we're trying to work out is what you know what are the trade offs? Where can you get away with currently uh, the sort of current thinking towards what's good from a panning point of view is third order is is good. Uh, but actually, if you're trying to really convince someone that what they're listening to is real and they're externalizing it correctly and all that kind of stuff, then actually going into a higher order is beneficial. Uh, and also, what normally happens when you turn your head is um, that the uh, the mix is rotated, which means that um, you're only getting uh, the reverb to the third to a third order. Where actually what we can do if we start to go to a higher order is even if you've got a third order mix, we can replay it in a higher order room and we can make it so that when you rotate your head, the mix stays still, but the room rotates or rather the head rotates properly. Um, so some of the work we're looking at now is, is getting this really high order measurements or synthesized rooms to really give you that externalization and the realism of the uh, the, the sound field that you're you're working in, and so currently, obviously, we're working to 35th order, knowing that we won't need to go to 35th order because that's far too high. Um, but that's 35th order is where you have to sample every five degrees, basically, when you're measuring the room response. Uh, and five degrees is a nice round number, so we can we went to that. Um, and so currently, I've, we've developed using Reaper because um, Reaper is quite powerful in that you can. It's got a little scripting engine inside it, so you can run Python scripts and all sorts of things. So we've got a, an automated turntable where we've got running off a script in Reaper that will turn it every five degrees. It will, it will measure the room using a, a Keymar dummy head. Uh, and then we've got some MATLAB code that will uh, crunch all those numbers and give us the, uh, the, the, the ambisonic or the spherical harmonic head-related transfer functions, basically, um, that we can then use uh, to, to simulate a very high order. Um, so it's quite an exciting project, and actually, you get, when it works well, you can you get really good externalization. Uh, and obviously, in lockdown, some of this stopped a bit. Um, so we've we've we're just about to release a web page where you can um, you can put in your audio source, and then it will use your webcam to do uh, the head tracking, uh, which has a bit more latency. But it was just really an experiment of something we could do in lockdown um, that we you know probably wouldn't have looked at had we had access to all of our equipment at the university. You've done so much and it's fascinating. And uh, I, I just got one question. With the benefit of hindsight of over two decades in working in a spatial audio, what areas do you think are the most important today and where the industry is heading? I think um, it's an exciting time for immersive audio in that there's now big companies with lots of money putting in a lot of research into into lots of different areas, and actually the uh, the landscape is moving faster than it ever has. So, although I've been working in it for for twenty years, it was a lot slower moving, you know, 
15 years ago than it is now, where there's just loads of stuff coming out. So it's actually a really exciting time. Um, and predicting what the next big thing is going to be is actually quite difficult because there's lots of people releasing papers and research going, oh, yeah, that's a really good idea. I wish I'd thought of that. Oh, yeah, that was a really good idea. Um, so it's difficult to know where it's going to go, actually. Um, I think uh, I think a big thing at the moment um, that really shows the direction is the new the new Apple earphones, I've forgotten what they're called, um, that's got built-in head tracking now. So their wireless headphones have got built-in head tracking. Um, and actually, everyone having access to low latency head tracking is a really great thing for immersive audio because that will really open the doors uh, to having high quality immersive audio over headphones. I, re- I still really think the, the big thing to then look at is the, is the sound of the place. Uh, so that's, again, that's where the thing we're focusing on now, but that makes a big difference. Um, and the other thing um, that is another project that's running at Derby that I've not mentioned actually, um, is looking at things like bone conduction headsets. So one thing that really gets in the way, bizarrely, of headphone listening is the headphones. Um, and just strapping headphones to your head psychologically really does drag everything in. Uh, and you find if you use bone conduction headsets, it's a lot easier to fool the ear brain system. Into, it's, a lot, it's a lot easier to do the augmented reality. It's a lot easier to put sound sources into the space you are in if, it, if, your, if your ear brain system doesn't think you're wearing headphones. Because it, all of a sudden it goes, well, that must be coming from over there. And, and some of the... And even with a, a lower fidelity quality of sound, you can really fool the listener into thinking there's stuff going on that there isn't. Um, so headphone listening without headphones, I think, eventually will become a big thing. So there's lots of there's lots of uh, avenues. I think um, if there's something I wish I'd done at the time, uh, I probably wish I'd, I'd made a full suite of Ambisonic tools and sold them. <laughs> But instead, I, I made a smaller suite and gave stuff away. Um, but it made it more fun. Which I'm sure our small community of spatial audio creators and users are very grateful for, especially in those early days. <laughs> yeah, and I think that was it. The early days, uh, it was experimentation. It was, um, you know, I put a few YouTube videos together just showing people how to put things together in Reaper. Because actually finding an audio workstation that was flexible enough to run to run the plugins was quite hard. So initially... I used to use them on the, the more modular hosts like Audio Mulch and Plug Bidule because that's all that was flexible enough. And then when Reaper came along uh, by Justin Frank of Winamp fame, that really was the, the enabler when it comes to music production uh, in a more flexible way. So ironically, the, the non-surround aware digital audio workstation at the time was the best one for ambisonic surround sound because it, it didn't ask you whether you wanted a 5.1 track or a 7.1 track. It just said, how many channels do you want on your track? And you go, oh, 64, please, thanks. <laughs> so yeah, but it's it's a really exciting time now. There's a lot there's a lot coming out from you know Facebook, Oculus, YouTube, uh, BBC. You know, lots of lots of companies getting involved and putting in the R and D uh, the R and D work, which is which is really exciting time. Um, and I remember a few years ago, no, it was probably about 2016, 17, where someone who'd used my plugins before. Uh, came up to me at a conference and said, "Oh, do you, are you not are you not really annoyed that that people are now releasing you know sort of paid for uh, you know plugins uh, and you were doing this stuff years ago?" Uh, and I said, "I oh, know it's awesome because it, it means I don't really have to keep mine up to date anymore with each new release of Mac OS. Um, I can just leave you know the, the 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 plugins that are already out there. I can just leave them and I can I can think about you know 
more interesting things, like I say, the, the high order reverb and the stuff that isn't available. Yeah, not everything is for sale. And as we're wrapping up, I just wanted to ask you guys, uh, what's in store for you personally, individually and collectively for 2020 or 2021? Um, as it seems the time going to freeze again for the next six months. So it's definitely going to be an interesting year um, from education education's point of view. My, uh, my, my children's school has already shut for one day and they've only been back two weeks um, because of outbreaks. So um, we're hoping to, to keep teaching all year. That's the first goal. I think from an immersive audio and research point of view, I think there's some exciting things we can look at actually. Um, although a lot of our teaching is remote and a lot of our work is remote, Sometimes that leads you into new avenues, as I mentioned, just looking at, you know, using the, the webcam for face tracking and that kind of stuff. Uh, we wouldn't have looked at had we not um, just thought, well, what, what can we do to make to make head tracking a bit more accessible, knowing that everyone's now stuck in lockdown, but we don't have access to head trackers anymore. Um, so I think we'll be working on, you know, increasing the immersiveness of headphone listening, uh, looking at this um, higher order capturing of rooms. Uh, we're hoping to capture some more interesting spaces. Currently, we've only tested it on a classroom and then lockdown hit. So we're hoping to to measure some more interesting spaces and release those to the world um, at a very high order. Uh, so things like cathedrals and, and bigger spaces. So we're hoping to do that this year. And that will be a joint sort of student staff project, hopefully, if it all comes off. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping it will be an exciting year. Duncan? Bruce, can you give one piece of advice to someone who wants to enter our industry today? Okay, that's the tricky one, isn't it? I guess you can only be philosophical and just go with your gut feeling, go with your instinct. And, you know, if that feels right for you, stay with it. Um, don't be put off by naysayers. Um, and, and, you know, I guess positivity and all that stuff. That's my cop out. Uh, I think I think my tip would just be experiment, experiment, learn, and talk to people. Uh, most people, I think, in our industry are reasonably friendly, actually, and open to communication. And I think in this day and age, via Twitter and all the other avenues, it's much easier to get in contact with people than it ever has been. So I think talk to people who you think are doing interesting things uh, and experiment and uh, learn by doing. Really, I think that's the uh, and show your wares. Duncan, Bruce. Thank you very much for your time talking to me today. Thank you very much, Oliver. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. Before you go, we want to hear from you. If you'd like to let us know what you think about our show, please take the quick survey in this episode's description. It'll help us make the Immersive Audio Podcast even better. We really appreciate your feedback. You've been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast. This episode was produced by Oliver Cadell and Michelle Chan and included music by Inobs Bergamo. If you can, head to our page on iTunes and leave us a review and rating. It really helps us out in pushing our show further. The podcast is also available on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Visit 1618digital.com to access the show notes and other episodes. Follow us at 1618digital on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening.